on our honeymoon on the Lost Coast, which is a section of Northern California, about five hours north of San Francisco. Uh, it's called the Lost Coast in part because the, the mountains go right up to the ocean uh, and there's basically uh, very little place to live. Uh, there's very few towns there. And while on our honeymoon, we were uh, hiking on the, the top of the mountain ridge, uh, going from uh, north to south. We're about 1,500 feet uh, above the ocean. And there, as we're hiking on our right, we can see uh, the pa panoramic views of the Pacific. And then on our, our left, on this mountain ridge, we see all of these other mountains uh, 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 on our left. Uh, and there on the ridge was a complete drop-off. And so there was nowhere, uh, nowhere to go. It was a beautiful day, and we hiked for several hours uh, along this ridge. And then we decided to, uh, to turn back. It, there was no loop here. We just could just turn around and, and go back from where we started. And it was in a very isolated uh, location there in Northern California. Well, as we were walking back on, on this path, all of a sudden, we look up, and about 150 feet in front of us is this gigantic bull elk. We were going north, and he was going south. And as we looked around, there was no path to the right or to the left in order to uh, get around him. Now, I'm a Massachusetts boy, and I have no idea what an elk is. <laughs> I just thought it was a large deer. And so I did what I would normally do. I, I started yelling and shouting at the thing. I got really big, and, and then I started throwing rocks. And finally, Tracy said, stop, Michael, what on earth are you doing? Don't you understand that's an elk? That thing could gore us. They do it all the time. Well, then Tracy took over. <laughs> and she had us go to, uh, uh, off the path through the, the chaparral bushes. These, these are large, thick bushes that are very sharp. And, uh, and we started navigating these, th these things. We're getting, we're in shorts and tank tops, and we're completely getting cut up and bloodied. And I'm like, Tracy, forget this. This is not the way. Stop. There's got to be another way. And uh, for 45 minutes, we did what any couple on their honeymoon would do, madly in love with one another. We argued. <laughs> and we didn't know what to do. Well, that's a pretty good picture, I think, of how the church tries to solve impossible problems where there's no other path beyond a foe. And what do we do? We argue, we bicker, we come up with our own schemes, and things just seem to get worse. We rely on our own strength. Well, what is the church to do when we face problems within and without, when the problem is unsolvable? What do we do when there's a foe right in front of us along the path that we're to go that we can't defeat? Here in Ephesians 6, the, the Apostle Paul is concluding his great letter to the Ephesians, and he's describing the foe that the church faces. And in verse 18 specifically, which is where we're going to focus our time this morning, there is, he outlines, one true mode of assault 
that the church has been given in order to stand against its foe and to experience victory. But before we get to verse 18, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand the nature of this foe. Look at verse 12 of Ephesians 6. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He makes it clear that the foe is not flesh and blood, which is language of human beings and the things that human beings create. These are not the foes, and he outlines the nature of the foes with four words of against here in verse 12, if you look at it. He says first, against rulers, the ESV translates the Greek word arche, which means primacy of rank. Uh, within the spiritual realm, of course, we do learn that there is, there are spiritual beings of higher rank and of great power. Jesus teaches in Matthew 12 that some are more wicked than others, and he teaches in Mark 9 that some are more powerful than others. And then he says a second against, against authorities. The word is exousia. It means it can be translated powers, where we get the language of principalities and powers. The, this idea of power is this concept of these beings have great force, like a, like a gale wind. They have the, the, the capacity that when they blow, they can knock things over and they can cause great destruction and, and chaos. And then a third against here in verse 12, cosmic powers over this present darkness. The, the, the words of cosmic powers is, it literally means world rulers. And it suggests, this idea of world rulers suggests that these beings, whatever exactly they are, and the scriptures do not tell us a lot about the unseen realm, but they do tell us that somehow they are able to exercise control over territory. And that's part of the reason why we read from the prophet Daniel in chapter 10. And there we, if you were paying attention to the reading, you realize that Daniel was praying on behalf of Israel after the decree of Cyrus and, and the people were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And Daniel, who was about 85 years old, begins to pray and to fast. And immediately his prayer is answered in the form of the angel Gabriel who was sent to Daniel, except Gabriel is blocked. Why? Well, in verse uh, 13 and 14, we read, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, the angel says. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is, what is to happen to your people in the latter days, this revelation. And here we get a, a an unusual and even strange illusion within this text of the unseen realm. It's the prince of Persia. Well, who on earth is that? Is that, is that a, a, an actual king of Persia? No, not at all. Because how could a king, a human king of Persia, stop Gabriel, an angel? That doesn't make any sense. This language of the prince is the same language that Paul is using in, in Ephesians 6. They are rulers. And not only are they rulers, but they have been given territory. Here we read the prince of Persia. And then later, uh, Gabriel mentions the prince of Greece. 
And then he alludes to Michael, who is the, he says, your prince, which is the prince of Israel. Here, Michael is given the domain of Israel as, a, as its a protector. Well, then finally, uh, we see this fourth against, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, Paul makes it clear, these are, these are pneumatikos. These are, these are spiritual forces. They are not human beings, and they are wickedly evil. And what we learn in the ministry of Jesus Christ is that when he came in his incarnation, he was casting out demons. And he was bringing war, spiritual war, upon the demonic realm. You see, we learn, the scriptures allude in some different ways, that after Satan and his minions fell, they were thrown out of heaven. We read about that in Revelation 12. And they were cast down to earth as part of their punishment and as part of our punishment. And then we read in Deuteronomy 32 that these demonic forces, which are worshipped by man as idols, are and hold territory. They've been given the, the nations as part of their inheritance, at least for a time. And there we have the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. Gabriel, who is trying to uh, come to Daniel, who is living in an enemy territory, the enemy of Babylon, and he's not technically allowed to go to the space except God has sent him, which is why uh, the prince of Persia is resisting him because he's going to bring a message that he doesn't want brought. But Satan, you see, has been conquered. He has been laid low by the power of Jesus Christ in the casting out, in the expression of the, re of the cross and of the resurrection the principalities and powers have been disarmed, we, we learn in, in Colossians chapter 2, which we'll hear about in, in a few weeks. But nevertheless, the scriptures continue to make clear that though the demonic realm has been defeated under Jesus Christ, nevertheless, they retain great power. Imagine the world and all of the nations are uh, like a, a great house. And you see, when Christ came and shed his blood, he he purchased the house for himself. And all of the nations, as king of kings and lord of lords, he is the inheritor of all of this house. Except, you see, the disinheritance of the demonic realm, the nations that they once occupied have now, the deed has been ripped away. It's been given over to Christ as lord, as the rightful lord. Nevertheless, the demonic realm acts like, well, kind of like squatters sitting in the home. They don't own the home any longer. But yet, they're not going to leave, and they're not going to leave but by great force. And in their desire, the demonic realm, to hold territory, in order to specifically hold men and women, boys and girls, in the darkness, not knowing the gospel, they employ schemes. And they not only employ schemes against individuals, but they especially, in our day and age, use schemes to hold the gospel and the church at bay by controlling vast territories through specific ways. Let me just name three. The first is the demonic realm uses political schemes through totalitarianism, which hinders the spread of the gospel. You see... Satan uses the iron fist of, of government, blocking free speech and freedom of religion. 
And if you block free speech and freedom of religion, you block the church from being able to bring the good news to Jesus Christ. And believe me, if the nations that are under such governments were to hear the good news of the love of Jesus Christ, there would be vast many coming to Jesus. And the demons know it. So they control the governments in order to remove free speech and religion, and therefore we can't go in. And they hold vast territories through this scheme. But not only that, but Satan uses religiously motivated violence. Violence in our day that is dramatically and overwhelmingly is against Christians around the globe. Christians are, are forbidden to speak about Jesus Christ. And not only that, if you convert, your family will disown you. Perhaps you'll be thrown into jail or you'll be legally or illegally murdered or executed. But in the West, there's a different scheme, a scheme in Europe and the United States that has been building um, over the last several generations, in which the demonic infiltrates cultural institutions through social forces by various ways, by cultivating a, a postmodern rejection of truth so that people begin to question whether there's truth at all, by marginalizing the importance of faith and creating a, a way of thinking around the privatization of religion, by creating pro propaganda, especially using the universities and the media, and creating a, a kind of a snickering campaign against really good Christian ideas that people just dismiss, by influencing our economic system and wooing us to hunger for more and more material things, cultivating that consumerism within our hearts, by, by driving technological advances, which are, of course, gifts from God, and yet, in human use of those technologies, we misuse them or overuse them, and it ends up degrading human life and undermining community bonds. And by entrench entrenching a legal and bureaucratic system, that ends up depersonalizing all of uh, our, our life and undermining relationships of love. Uh, in, in his book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, the, the, the great sociologist of religion, Max Weber, more than 100 years ago, described this entire social system. He predicted, he saw it all, he wrote it all down, and he described the entire system, and he uh, famously called it the iron cage. You see, Max Weber argues that increasing rationalization of life and efficiency and the bureaucratization of our social order leads to a community that ends up being trapped in an economic system that leaves the, the least of these behind. And in a, a system that increases violence in our societies because people have lost the sense of meaning and of transcendent meaning in particular. And it's what Weber famously described uh, as a, the polar night of icy darkness. Now, Weber was no Christian. He was the son of a pastor, but he himself did not follow Christ. But he recognized that there was no institution within Western society that was able to carry the message of love and of faith and of goodwill to neighbor. Now, of course, those principles are all acknowledged in our society as good. But what's happened 
is that through the marginalization of the church and through the dismissal of the gospel as being nonsensical and unimportant, what has happened is that the church, which is as an institution, more than 350,000 of them even in the United States, that institution no longer has the, the, the word or the credibility within our culture. It's dismissed. And because of that dismissal, the message of the church, the institutions that carry the message, are silenced. And what we are left with is what I would consider, Weber wouldn't say this, but I believe it's very consistent with Paul. So Paul is saying it's a demonic scheme. And it's leading, you can look, it's leading to more and more chaos in our society. It's a slow boil, but it's happening. Now, of course, talk of the demonic uh, can lead to two opposite errors. On, on, on the one hand, we find Christians who find demons under every rock, and they blame Satan for every hangnail. Uh, and we can easily over-spiritualize um, humanly caused problems. But I think the, the opposite error is really the one that we have to be most concerned about, in which talk of the demonic is thought of as just positively medieval. It's, a, it's a, just an antiquated mythological worldview. We're dealing with human problems that need human solutions. We don't need myth. We need better education and more money and greater technology and the right politics and the right politician. But don't you see that doesn't work? It's not working. More human solutions that are embedded just within the system that it created the problems doesn't bring so the solutions we need. We need something else. And that's why Paul is, in verse 12, is drawing our attention to this reality that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We are facing a foe with very effective schemes, all of which are geared to controlling the territory of the hearts of men and women. And in many ways, it's working. What can we do? What can you and I do against such overwhelming schemes that are leading to greater and greater chaos? Well, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 here is laying out a, a two-pronged approach. Uh, the first part of that approach is taking up these tools of spiritual warfare, which are described in verses 14 through 17. Many, many have described these, and I'm not going to take the time uh, to, to describe those today. But I want to bring you to the conclusion of this passage, which is in verse 18. Because once you take up the tools of warfare, we are then to use a single mode of assault. Well, what is that single mode? Well, it's found in verse 18. Paul is painting this picture of this divine messianic warrior in, in full battle armor. And he's standing firm, mentioned standing several times. And what is this divine warrior in his battle armor doing? Well, to our shock, the only thing that he's doing is in verse 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You see, the entire letter of the Ephesians has been building up to this final crescendo, which 
takes place in verse 18. We, we read about prayer in chapter 1. It's an amazing prayer about the eyes of our hearts. And then in the very middle of the book of Ephesians, he again brings this great prayer uh, that he prays for the Ephesians and for all believers. But now in this final moment, he's, he's bringing the capstone, the bookend to the letter of Ephesians with this spiritual warfare metaphor capped off with this final assault. And it's all with prayer. And specifically, he uses all prayer. I don't know if you noticed that when we read verse 18. He uses the word all four times. And I just want to consider those each in their turn. The first all, he says, is praying at all times. Praying in all places and in all circumstances, on every occasion. He's saying we need to be like Daniel, who, who prayed morning, noon, and night. We need to be like Jonah, who prayed in the belly of the whale, or like the prophet Samuel, who prayed all night long. We need to be like Paul and Silas, who prayed at midnight in jail. We need to be like Jesus, who prayed in desolate places, and he even prayed on the cross. In prayer, you see, it's a growing conversation with the living God, talking to him and listening to him, in which, he, in which he invites each one of us into this intimate, beautiful relationship. Prayer is this tremendous, delicious gift that he invites all of us to enjoy. It's about relationship, and that's part of the reason why he says praying at all times in the Spirit in the spirit. What does he mean? Well, I believe he, what he means is he's referring to the spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, who we learn in Romans 8. The spirit himself is praying with words and groanings that cannot be understood by us. The Holy Spirit is praying to the Father for all sorts of things on earth. He's praying for you and for me and for the nations. And he's singing this song of prayer and he's inviting, the Spirit invites you to sing the song of prayer with him. He calls you to, to join him. And he'll use all kinds of promptings and suggestions and he'll bring thoughts to your mind. And he does this in order for you to join him. Because it's a relationship and it's a partnership. Uh, just this week, my father, uh, I, I think it was on Tuesday morning, he woke up, and all of a sudden, he had woken up with a man's name on his mind. A man he had worked with 50 years ago, who he had never thought of, or had not thought of for many, ever since. But all of a sudden, it was in his mind. He said, huh, I wonder how he's doing. I wonder where, what happened to him. And so he did a Google search. And would you believe that there was an obituary of this man from his death three days before? And the wake was just the next day. That just doesn't happen. That's the kind of work that the Holy Spirit does. And of course, what was the Spirit doing? Just giving information to my dad? No. My dad needed to pray. Pray for the family. And he needed to go to the wake, which he did. And he was able to meet the family and, and encourage them. A man he hadn't seen or talked to for 50 years. And yet the Holy Spirit is doing all kinds of work. And he wants us to enter into 
this intimate relationship and to join him in the prayers that he's praying to the Father. Well, that's praying at all times in the Spirit. But then he says the second all is to pray with all prayer and supplication. You see, prayer is this multifaceted, manifold gift that's been given to you and to me. It's not a formula. It's praying in so many ways. We're, we can pray with lament and in thanksgiving. We can give praise. We can cry. We can adore. We can groan. We can talk up a storm in prayer, or we can just sit in silence before the Lord in prayer. We can use a prayer journal, like I do most every morning, or you can sing prayers on the guitar, like my wife Tracy does. You can use old prayers and new prayers. You can pray in your closet, and you can pray in the congregation. You can use impromptu prayers, and you can pray with carefully written prayers. We can pray sitting and kneeling and lying on our face. You can pray walking your dog and you can pray standing. The key is not the manner of prayer. It's a manifold gift to use in all kinds of ways. The key is to do it and to find the rhythms that match your personality and your life in order to pray increasingly more and mo more and more. We need to pray alone and I would challenge you, you need to pray every day. Read your Bible and pray every day. Pray every day. Pray every day, as the children's song goes. We need to pray and find a way to pray. Find a way that matches your schedule and how you go to work, and perhaps it's on the train, or perhaps it's in the morning, the first thing you do, or perhaps it's at night before you go to bed. Or there's some way in which you find a rhythm that works for you. But find that way and pray every day. But we're also to pray collectively together, joining our voices. In our Park Street, we do find ways to pray together. You can, Nathan and others lead prayer Monday through Friday at 8.30 in the morning. You can join on Zoom. We have all church prayer that meets every week, both in person and on Zoom. We invite you to come and to pray within the collective. And to find the rhythms of praying alone and together that meet this all prayer and supplication. Well, then there's a third all. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. You see, prayer is not a one and done. We have to keep watching. We have to persevere. We have to keep at it, not grow weary and give up. I prayed, I tried. I guess God doesn't care. No. No. He calls us to unrelenting, watchful prayer with fasting, persevering. And it's that that touches the heart of God. We're not to be like, we're to be like Daniel. Daniel who, he prayed. And the prayer was answered that very moment because God loves Daniel in his prayers. And yet, Daniel didn't know. He had to wait and fast 21 days until he discovered that the, indeed the prayer had been answered. And it's amazing to me that God has designed all of history 
so that you and I are called to participate with him in the future. Because do you realize that our prayers matter? And the more that we pray, evil pulls back. And the less that we pray, you got it, evil goes forward. Are we praying? Are you praying? Are we praying together? Are we bringing our voices together? Staying strong and holding the note as, as Dan, our choir director, was telling the choir before the service. They, they started to drop the note. He said, hold the note and keep it up. And they brought it back up. And that's what we're to do. We're to hold the note and keep on praying because our prayers, if we don't pray, the enemy will win. And the sovereign God has designed the world and it calls us into that participation. Horton the elephant from Dr. Zeus. Horton the elephant, he could hear all the who's in Whoville on a little speck of dust. And he carried around that speck, but no one else could hear them. And the violent jungle animals, they wanted to destroy and boil the speck. So Horton told all the who's in Whoville, he said, you need to make a noise. You need to make as much noise as you can to be heard. And they brought all their trumpets and their drums and their choirs and they were shouting and making a great clang. But it wasn't enough. They couldn't be heard other than by Horton, the mayor of the town. He, he searched high and low, looking. We needed more voices. We need, we need more sound makers. And then finally, in an apartment, the mayor found little Jojo playing on his yo-yo. He said, Jojo, get off your yo-yo. You need to make noise. And it wasn't until Jojo said, yump, that was it. That was the last cry of the word. And then, it was only then, when little Jojo joined all of the clanging, that they were heard and they were saved. God has called each of us to join in in making a great sound to him, worshiping him, calling out, praying against evil. And if we join our voices, the promise of this one gift of an assault, prayer alone, can change all of history. And if we don't, history will go in a different direction, according to the sovereign will of God. Well, then there's this final law, and just very quickly, he says, making supplication for all the saints. We're called, you see, to bear one another's burdens. So we have to know one another's prayer requests, and we're we have to be willing to be vulnerable and share our prayer requests. There is no request that's too small. And we're called to create lists and to pray for all the saints, for a person's a person, no matter how small. That's the last of Dr. Seuss. All prayer, it celebrates, especially in this passage, collective prayer. Yes, we, we have to pray alone 
in our closets. But we also, we need to pray together in unison. That's really the picture that Paul is drawing in Ephesians 6. It's this single warrior, this single warrior with many members as the body of Christ, and we're all operating together with this single mode of assault, the great mighty gift of, of prayer. You see, collective prayer is like, it's like the mighty Colorado River. Colorado brings water to some 40 million Americans. And there are over a hundred tributaries that form the mighty Colorado. But do you realize that there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of unnamed brooks and creeks and cricks and channels and rivulets and rills and streams and estuaries and trenches and ravines and spillways, all of which are necessary. And you start pulling away even one or two or three, and there is an effect. And so each one of us are called to join together into creating not the Colorado, but something far greater. And if you stop praying, your, your, your spillway dries up. It has an effect. You're changing the future. You are. That's the way God has designed it. This is not about guilt. We don't guilt people into praying. All you have to do is say, yes, I do want this. I consent to it. I give myself over. Lord, take my little spillway and fill it up, and I'll dump it in to this mighty river so that you might change the desert into good things for many people. We have been given this mighty assault, and we're called to use it. It's the only thing that will work. Well, Tracy and I were at this 45-minute standoff with the elk, arguing, not sure what to do. And then finally, one of us said, let's pray. We can't remember who, but, I, but Tracy is far more spiritually mature than me. I'm sure it was her that came up with the idea. And so with one eye closed and one eye still on the elk, we prayed. And we don't remember what we prayed, but we asked for an answer. And after that prayer, I kid you not, we took a few steps forward. And then all of a sudden, Tracy saw on the left side of the path a hidden path. And we didn't know where it was going, but we went down it and started going off the path, going in and around the chaparral bushes without getting cut. And we went 20 or 30 feet, we're probably 25 feet now off the path to our left. And then we looked up, and the elk wasn't in front of us anymore. The elk had gone off to its left, and it was crossing us on the other side. And we each went along until we both got back. The elk went that way. We went that way. And we learned a big lesson that we've never forgotten that day. We want to solve things in our own power. You know, when I see a bully 
I want to fight. That's the way I guess God has made me. But that's not the way I need to be. Certainly not all the time. Tracy, she kind of wants to run from conflict, and she'll go through bushes and cut herself up. But neither way is right. Church, there's only one way. And it's the way of mighty, awesome, powerful, all prayer. And if we do that, God will show a way. Lord God, we pray that you would do this, that you would show us, and that this congregation would arise. And we would be able, through your power, and through our submission and faith, to see things that we know today are impossible with man. But not with you, O oh Lord. Not with you. Amen.